and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. This week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the writer Elvia Wilk about her debut book of essays, Death by Landscape. So I wasn't on this interview. Can you tell me a little bit about what the book was about? Yeah, this is, I don't know, somewhere between literary criticism and cultural criticism. It it focuses a lot on sci-fi. Oh, I was going to say, at first, that's my perfect sweet spot. But then I was going to also say sci-fi is not always exactly the place where I gravitate to. Yeah. I mean, I love science fiction and I do read some, but I think I read like more popular writers, you know, Mm. Philip K. Dick or Octavia Butler. I don't get very deep into the genre. But reading Alvia's book, it seems like there is no other genre to be reading at the moment if you really want to contend with climate change. Oh, that's an interesting... Okay, so that's the central focus of the book. And so much more. Her her argument for science fiction is really that it is a way for us to shift a more human-focused narrative to, you know, relationship with the natural world, with plants, also with technology, Mm. and that some of that fundamental shifting could impact the way that we live and the way that we have to live in this present moment. Just, you know, not always having humans as the the single reference point. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And the new weird is the genre she also writes about and and what can happen kind of in in a more merged relationship between humans and plants, between humans and machines. And and it also focuses a lot on just the way we craft narrative and kind of the resultant worldview that stems from that. And just really, you know, kind of a slight shift in certain stories that are told over and over. It's like pretty revelatory. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this book a lot. It made me think about a lot of things that are important to me and and Elvia is great to talk to. All right, let's get to it. Great. I'm excited to be speaking with the writer Elvia Wilk today. Elvia Wilk's first novel, Oval, was published in 2019 by Soft Skull Press and her essays and reviews appear frequently in publications such as Art Forum, Book Forum, Freeze, and M Plus One. She is the recipient of a 2019 Andy Warhol Arts Writer Grant and a 2020 Fellowship at the Brooke Ruin Institute. Currently, she is a contributing editor at Eflux Journal and teaches at universities in both Berlin and New York. She joins me to discuss her latest book, Death by Landscape, a collection of essays, including one published by the Los Angeles Review of Books. The pieces in Death by Landscape invite us to look more closely at the narratives that persist in this time of environmental collapse and cataclysm. Reading a range of fiction and theory, including the works of writers such as Mark Fisher, Margaret Atwood, Amitav Ghosh, Jeff Vandermeer, Octavia Butler, and Karen Russell, Wilk explores the stories and the genres that might allow us to decenter our human-centric perspective of Earth and reimagine other divisions, such as the separation of people and plants, dystopian utopia, role play and reality, and the apocalypse as a decisive moment. Thank you so much, Elvia, for being here and speaking with me today. I'm totally honored. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could just start by talking a little bit about the period in which a lot of these essays were written. I noticed there's some overlapping themes with your novel, 
you speak a little bit about writing your novel in this book of essays. When were you working on them? Yeah. So the novel that I wrote came out in 2019. And it was shortly after that, that I started what eventually became this body of work. These essays are really evolutionary in the sense that a lot of them began as talks or as different kinds of texts. I even started a role play, which comes up in the book, which evolved into an essay about role play. So there's kind of a diversity of approaches as to how they came to be. But over the course of two, two and a half years, I started seeing them as a collection and I started to write through them as if they belonged in a narrative arc. I hope that there's some kind of surface tension to the book, that it holds together as a piece, but the pieces themselves are really diverse. (laughs) And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those like wide ranging topics, but the bulk of the writing of the brand new material took place during the pandemic. I'd say half of it was written, maybe more. It's hard to say. At least half of it was written during dark pandemic days. And (laughs) I wanted to be really transparent in the book, but sort of by the end of the book, I talk about this informed the writing process. You know, (laughs) this didn't happen in a vacuum. And a lot of what came out was based on what was a really transformational time. Right. And, you know, the pandemic is a interesting backdrop because so much of what you write about seems to be, you know, some analysis of science fiction and science fiction, as you mentioned, you know, has this kind of before and after construction of narrative. You call it the novum. That's the instigating event. And then things are different in the world. And the pandemic Mm -hmm. surely could seem like it kind of mirrors that structure. But I think you're asking many times, you know, if that's really the most, obviously realistic is subjective, but if that's maybe the most true way that fiction could be structured in the way it reflects life. Yeah, exactly. So that term novum is borrowed from this critic, Darko Suven, who wrote about the ways that science fiction extends reality. And he suggested that there is this typically technological invention that the plot hinges around and that the story requires that intervention into reality to launch itself into science fictional space. And that does create a before and after, even if the before was kind of in the space before the story began. So For me, when I was writing fiction before the pandemic, I even talk in my novel quite explicitly about a before and after in the book. (laughs) So I was understanding time as structured in before and after rupturing events or cataclysms or losses, thinking a lot about grief as a before and after experience. And through the pandemic, I came to understand something that I think a lot of people have written about, the fact that apocalypses are slow, violences are slow, catastrophes are slow, and that it's about the moment that, I guess, the threshold point at which change becomes visible. And that's changed the way that I read fiction and also write fiction, thinking about, I guess, ways to describe things that are not so apocalyptic in the sense of a comet hitting the earth or something. So I talk about a movie by Lars von Trier called Melancholia, where a comet collides with earth. And that became a very important image in my mind because that's the way we imagine change happens or the end will happen, everything will burn down. And I think it's actually much more challenging to imagine what if it doesn't all burn down at once? (laughs) You know, what happens if there are a million small fires? 
Right. And the time of the pandemic has kind of been some version of that, where I think everyone in the beginning was anticipating, okay, this will last a certain amount of time, you know, oh, this is, and even, you know, when COVID-19 arrived, it's kind of been brought into question as well. Like maybe it didn't start in 2019. I've heard some people say that it was around before and that we're still there. I mean, it's still happening. You know, it's not, I think the end point isn't clear anymore. It's actually not necessarily going to end. Yeah. This is something that I, (laughs) I feel like I relearn this like every week at this point, (laughs) like I still am waiting for the after, although of course we're living in it and it's protracted and (laughs) infinite. And I just, I find this to be like a huge challenge to my structuring principles. And that's what COVID did to a lot of my structuring principles, which I bring up in the book, my relationship to work. That was a huge change. I had to stop thinking in terms of a certain kind of future or a certain type of moving forward in time (laughs) towards a given destination. And that becomes sort of a reflection on the way I think about fiction and about science fiction in particular as a genre, which imagines were, you know, a progress-oriented narrative, directional forward-moving time, which I no longer exist within (laughs) in the same way. None of us do. When did you start reading science fiction? It's such a reference point for you. I'm curious when you came to it. I think Kurt Vonnegut, probably like all of us in like within the U.S. education system, Kurt Vonnegut is somehow like built in, which I always think is interesting. But I re-came to Kurt Vonnegut some years ago while writing my novel and suddenly discovered the humor of science fiction, which pushed me into like a kind of feverish reading spree where I was reading for humor and for (laughs) kind of like the joy of wild deviations from consensus reality, which the best science fiction can provide. So I think it was, yeah, it was funniness was the reason I originally became invested in science fiction as a genre, thanks to Kurt Vonnegut. And then Kurt Vonnegut also has become kind of a foil for me because of his his biography, his kind of intense masculinist writing practices, disengaging from everyday life. And I often think of myself in opposition to him or in relation to him. But yeah, I'm a sci-fi fan, not so much in like the expanded sense, but I have to say pretty much in the literary sense. I'm pretty interested in the lineage of science fiction as an invention. It's a historical invention. So sometime in the 19th century, it was born. And I've been lately revisiting some early sci-fi. That's been useful. It seems from your book that science fiction has a capacity for addressing our current climate moment more than perhaps other genres in a way that could be somewhat of a radical departure from more realist fiction. You talk about this genre called the new weird. I wonder if you could describe that a little bit. Yeah, well, science fiction is a tough term because it's a genre category with a lot of historical baggage. And I also think, I mean, importantly, when talking about climate change, I think it's Kim Stanley Robinson who says, like, if we just put climate fiction on the science fiction shelf, we might forget that like <laughs> it's happening now all the time around us. So, you know, putting it in the future or other world category might actually be antithetical to what we're trying to do. But so I ended up with this term, the new weird, which has been kind of popularized by Jeff Vandermeer and Anne Vandermeer. They've done collections and kind of sort of like given it a set of terms, but it's specifically in reaction to 
old weird fiction, <laughs> which emerged also around, I guess, like the turn of the 20th century with the quintessential weird author H.P. Lovecraft. There were others, but generally people kind of are thinking of him when they use the word original weird fiction. <laughs> and he wrote about mysterious ancient creatures coming back from the depths of time and overwhelming the contemporary, usually male white characters sense of control over the world or his sense of, I guess, prowess, <laughs> technological or otherwise. So new weird fiction kind of reprises this set of concerns with deep time, with the non-human, with an awareness of planetary change. But I think, and I hope with a different set of ideas around otherness. So Lovecraft was racist and xenophobic and had a, you know, for him, the tentacled scary sea creature was a clear analog for a frightening other from beyond the reaches of the white Western world who was threatening to him. And I think the new weird has the potential to reframe those antagonisms or those dichotomies and search for the other within and also to through weirdness, you know, and deep strangeness to estrange us from ourselves, the structuring principles we take for granted, the hierarchies between the human and the non-human, and to give us some new ways of considering the human relationship with the natural world. In the title essay, Death by Landscape, you, know, you talk about this kind of essential shift where we think of the landscape as a background for the human story and that in some of the pieces of fiction that you reference, there's kind of a melding or even that suddenly a human might find itself as a part of like a plant story, that there might be an overtaking of a human body by a plant, that there might be kind of this co-species something, I don't know, uh, <laughs> mating. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting and definitely something I take for granted and wouldn't even have thought it's an interesting thought exercise to question how you could tell that kind of story, not necessarily with the human at the forefront. And I wondered, maybe you talked just a little bit about what you think the political implications of that might be. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to frame the question. The idea of that first essay is about, as you say, figure and ground. So the human as the figure and the everything else as the background. So natural world, but also technology, you know, also systems, also historical events. So, you know, but the single human or group of people kind of leading the story or this idea that we can only understand the rest of the world if we have a human leading us through it. And I don't know if there are stories without humans leading them, but I do find these examples of kind of like fiction where specifically usually women transform into plants or disappear into forests, or the assumption is that they have become other, other in the sense of vegetal, <laughs> or some of them, this kind of interspecies incursion where there's almost like a pseudosexual or like interbreeding thing going on, like an alien presence, like that the body is really under transformation or undergoing some kind of fusion. And those are examples for me of really, you know, definitely new weird stories that suggest ways that the human agent might give way to another agent. And by agent, I guess I mean protagonist. So I'm thinking about 
how could plants be the protagonist of a story that's still fascinating and compelling in a narrative way? And I think the political implications are great in the sense of big, <laughs> but this shift of frame and the way that we frame things and the way that we tell stories about ecosystems is incredibly important, whether we think about how everything is going to have an impact on the human, how we think of you know, human interest being the way that journalism might be generated or that people need to have sort of like single human examples in order to appreciate stories. I think that a lot of that framework could shift and we could start talking about other creatures as protagonists. I thought the distinction that you draw in this essay that starts with gay ibises, was it? The birds? Yeah, the gay birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the gay birds who are possibly gay because of mercury poisoning. And that was the headline. Oh, like these poor gay birds, like what have humans done to them? Again, kind of like challenge this distinction between the natural world without humans, a state of perfection where in the world before we destroyed it was good. And then the human alteration of nature, you know, is then something to kind of like discount. And I love what you say, which is just like, you know, in an age of massive collapse, why wouldn't you celebrate all life? That's something that would distance us even further from animals and plants to think, oh, well, you know, now they're ruined. So now we should forget about them also seems like very destructive. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we have to give up on purity states completely and we should have a long time ago. Purity also implying its converse, which is, as you say, ruined. There is no such thing as an environment that has not been altered by human behavior. It's important to say that this doesn't mean conservationist efforts are irrelevant or invalid. Of course, as much as possible, there should be spaces where the natural world is left to its own devices, but it's a global ecosystem and you can't sort of draw fences around things in the way that conceptually you might like to. So that story about the gay birds is sort of like, well, yeah, maybe these birds' endocrine systems were disrupted by pollution and maybe they're not mating to breed anymore. Maybe they're mating for fun. <laughs> maybe they always were and we weren't paying attention, you know, because we imagine that intergenerational life is the point of living. And we imagine that for ourselves, but we also, I mean, I use the we very loosely here, right? <laughs> I'm talking about certain sort of general opinions. But I thought this was a really provocative question that this health scientist Anne Pollock posed in relation to these kind of species whose endocrine systems have been altered, where she says, why do we assume that these birds can't be happy even if they're not reproducing? You know, of course, it's sad that they might go extinct and that that's our fault. But the fact that they're enjoying themselves <laughs> must be taken into consideration. We might also be enjoying ourselves on the verge of going extinct. And, you know, beyond that, why map on human value systems, even sexuality categories onto animals? It's very weird. And by looking at the weirdness of that, back to this idea of weirdness, maybe we could incorporate the understanding of how weird those dichotomies and hierarchies are into our understanding of human life as well. It seems like trying to connect with plants, imagining perhaps plants as sentient beings, imagining that we could connect more deeply with animals. You know, it has on this one hand, like kind of the new weird 
element that you're talking about, but then it also relates at different points to mysticism as well. That breaking down this barrier between, you know, the the individual self and everyone else seems important or exciting or like that could be very, very fruitful, especially in stories. Yeah. I mean, I use this term ecosystems fiction, which is exactly as you say, this idea of breaking down the opposition or the distinction even between the human and the collective. And when I talk about mysticism in a historical sense, I'm talking about sort of usually within religious frameworks, encounters that people, often women, had with the divine presence that they then tried to describe in words and were never able to because the experience can't be encapsulated in language. And I really found some of these mystical accounts from hundreds and hundreds of years ago to read like literary experiments in describing a personal encounter with the planetary or a personal encounter with an ecosystem that is too complicated and too big to describe in words. And you could talk about the collective in many ways. You could talk about the political collective or the community, but you could also talk about the planetary, but you could also talk about the ecosystem. And I think that's what I'm really interested in is the collective that is more than human, the collective that transcends species boundaries. And I think it's important to always say that also transcends the species boundary between human and technology, however we construe that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Elvia Wilk, author of Death by Landscape. So we're in this prolonged moment of environmental collapse. And you write about the responsibility of science fiction writers to address that and the ways that they could address that. And one of the ways is like a solutionism style of writing where it's like, okay, well, here's some ways the future could be better. Like here's, here's, (laughs) here's some (laughs) solutions to this present moment, instead of just imagining everything in, you know, dystopian or utopian terms that, that maybe that's a path, but you also seem a little skeptical of that. And you say that you would rather write something called, called dislocation. Maybe you could describe that. Yeah. So the term you brought up dislocation comes from the author Omar el who says something like, I don't think about my fiction as something that could happen, but something that is already happening in the world right now to people. And from my perspective, what he's saying is these people may or may not be included in dominant narratives, or they may not be in mainstream stories. And so actually just moving the frame, another kind of like frame shift, you know, Maybe, maybe these protagonists were formerly portrayed as background actors. So maybe it's as simple as allowing them to be protagonists of stories. So this idea of dislocation rather than solutionism or rather even than kind of progress-oriented science fiction is kind of like, well, let's find the micro-utopias and dystopias in the now. Let's look at how micro-utopias and dystopias coexist and change scale all the time. And it's true. Reality is stranger than fiction. There's not a lot of wild speculation you need to do. It's all happening. Yeah. You mentioned that William Gibson quote that is a favorite of one of my friends in the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I think that's really true that, you know, more and more science fiction doesn't, I mean, 
the I, I think I read pretty mild-mannered science fiction, but like Octavia Butler, Philip K. Dick, these things don't seem that you know unbelievable anymore. They they seem like oh, there's there are many points of reality where things kind of meet up if you're looking at different situations. I also think it can be hard reading about fiction to imagine that it really matters, that it could do anything, that that shifting stories could actually change the world. Although you mentioned how much, you know, that other kind of future predictors that are also forms of stories, like forms of finance, forms of trend forecasting, all these things really do seem to have an influence on the future or like the very near present even. So I I wonder if that's something that you question or have thought about, you know, writing so much about these fictions and these real world problems. If stories do matter, if, if you do think there's a possibility for narrative changes to somehow affect real life. Yeah, it's really hard to answer because I write fiction, so I want it to. So there's a there's a vested interest here. <laughs> but it would be totally delusional of me to say that, you know, writing novels is solving climate change or much less critically dissecting novels in a book of nonfiction essays is tackling climate change. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make that argument here, but I will say that having written a novel and having written some texts that have traveled in the world, I have felt very uncanny effects at times. And those have been small, but they have been fascinating. As small as an app that was invented that resembled very closely an app that I made up or that I thought I made up, you know, who knows if I did. And I don't think it's as simple as somebody leafing through the science fiction section looking for monetizable ideas. But that stuff does happen. And there are plenty of historical examples of science fiction writers inventing technologies that they then sold or that then were taken up and co-opted and made profitable. I mean, science fiction is interesting to me also because it has a special relationship to innovation and to scientific change and to quote unquote progress, which is to say that it admits a kind of desire to intervene in the now, which I think a lot of fiction doesn't, or at least it admits a relationship to change, I guess. I became interested in speculation in financial terms because that helped me understand how a fiction can shape a reality. In broad strokes, to speculate on a market is often to create the conditions in which that speculation will become valid. And as you mentioned, same with trend forecasting, but the fashion market responds to the forecasts that have been given. So there are models for thinking about the way that these reciprocal loops between fiction and reality work today. And I do think that because of systems like financialization, there is a speed built into these feedback loops that is probably faster than it used to be. So when I think about the relationship between books or movies and reality, I do think that there are these minute feedback loops happening all the time but I couldn't tell you how they happen. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess depending on the fiction, that's an exciting prospect or or a terrifying one. It is hopeful in in a sense. You know, there's also this kind of turn against to get another before and after here of imagining that trauma, like like kind of, again, back to this idea of, of the novum, you know, this instigating incident that the trauma could be the backstory for the present, that someone's intense bodily trauma or what emotional trauma might explain their present moment. 
that that essay seems like a little bit different from the others, although I think it again is fitting into this push against like some really simplified before and after narratives. I wonder how you came to write that one. The essay Extinction Burst about kind of like traumatic recollection. Yes. Yeah, that one was based on experience. I guess I was led to artwork and texts in that case through an experience of traumatic recollection of my own, I suppose. I do think that essay is a little different than the others. I wouldn't be able to say how, but maybe because it has more of an intense intermingling of a personal narrative and a set of historical narratives, where in other essays, those are maybe teased apart more. But there's so much about trauma <laughs> at the moment. There's, it's hard to add, so I don't want to pile on to trauma discourse. But I did want to talk about trauma in the context of this book because of the way the book is dealing with aspects of slow violence and aspects of figure and ground and non-human or more than human world. And I wanted to also bring the story into my body and to allow myself to enter the book. And I think that essay is where my body arrives and where it becomes clear that the material that I'm interfacing with these pieces of fiction, these artworks, these movies, that they're really affecting me and my way of perceiving the world. And I think that's also, you know, an sort of implicit argument for the role of storytelling, which is to say that I felt changed on a physical level by some encounters I had. And the one that begins that essay is an encounter with a Renaissance painting by Francesco del Cossa, a painting of St. Lucia, who is this eyeless saint whose eyes were stabbed out when she was martyred. And she's holding an extra pair of eyes. And I, like many people, I think became obsessed with this painting. And for me, it was also because I was reading and researching EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a kind of trauma therapy that attempts to integrate past traumatic experiences with current life narratives. So to bring your past experience into the now and allow it to be a story rather than a physical painful recollection. And it does that using eye movement. And while looking at this painting, I felt like I was doing this trauma therapy exercise. This led me to think about what trauma meant to people in the 1500s, <laughs> which made me think very differently about the way that we discuss trauma now and, and trauma discourse, which is really about bouncing back and resolving and recovering and repairing and healing. Whereas like, for instance, a medieval Catholic might be obsessed with re-traumatizing themselves through obsessing over Christ's suffering. <laughs> and that's a pretty different relationship to trauma. Not to say that I think we should be doing that or something, but it helped me re-narrativize my own relationship to my own experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, you write a, a couple of times about LARPing. That was also interesting in, in kind of a space in between real life experience, fiction, where you can kind of work out some things that you want, you know, that, that, that it had a lot of power and potential for play that is a little different than more like scripted interactions, although it seems fairly scripted as well. How was that experience for you? 
LARPing stands for live action role play for the uninitiated. And <laughs> it's a form of interaction that has a lot of different schools. The school I'm interested in is called Nordic LARPing for its um, origins in the Nordic countries. And it is interested in world building, interested in simulations. It draws often from psychotherapy practices. It draws from BDSM contracts and kind of like safe words to create scenarios that players improvise within. So you might have an Octavia Butler novel that serves as the inspiration for a LARP where players take on different characters and expand Octavia Butler's world. Or you could have a LARP in a Cold War bunker, or you could have some really interesting politicized LARPs where Palestinians and Israelis LARP the reverse conflict. So it can be used in educational ways, experimental ways, psychotherapeutic ways, all sorts of things. I became obsessed with LARP because of the realization that it is a communally authored space where a narrative is being co-constructed in real time by multiple people, which is awesome if you're struggling to write a novel <laughs> and it's all on you. And I really loved the experience of learning how to build a story with others. And I also loved the experience that I had where I distributed my novel among others and had them bring it to life and, um, and improvise within the sort of the world I provided. It also allowed me to think of, of fictions as kind of like, yeah, as ecosystems, as collaborative spaces that exist in the world, but change the world, right? Like the, the game doesn't stop when the game stops, the players continue existing and they've been changed by the game. You know, the last essay, or I guess it's the epilogue here, I found really moving because it seemed to me to be about trying to find a narrative for yourself of why you do what you do and, and what's driving you. You know, it seems like kind of a wistful piece in, in a sense, because you're trying to reckon with how you live and the value of your work in a sense. I don't know. It, it, it really touched me. Uh, and also I think it speaks to the difficulty over the last few years that a lot of people have had just being in isolation and without the social, tangible IRL social world, things really collapse. You know, yeah. those distinctions were, were spatial. And when they cease to be spatial, it's very confusing. What is what? I don't know. I just, I wondered how you're feeling now, if, you, if you're feeling like you find a little bit more pleasure in your life or your work. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're obviously very productive. You've just published a book. How are you kind of, again, it's this ongoing moment. It's still happening. Things aren't the same as they were, you know, how is that affecting your day-to-day -day life? Yeah. I mean, where are we now? It's a good question because that essay was written explicitly about pretty intense lockdown period, where, as you say, the distinction between work and life became just totally untenable for a lot of people or, or impossible to demarcate. And for me, my, my work ballooned rather than the other way around. I think that's also an experience a lot of people had. But it forced me to confront a lot of my existing assumptions and probably pathologies <laughs> surrounding the way that work was moving me forward through time. And the idea that I had that work is sort of like the telos or like the reason for being. And something changed. My relationship to my own ambition changed. 
my work ethic is still there, but it's different. I don't have a solution and I wouldn't say I've, I wouldn't say I've reached a nirvana state, but I would say that I've started to make a distinction between discipline and punishment. <laughs> and that what formerly was exclusively punishing or because I was so rigorous with myself and, and was placing such high demands on my, on my work life, that it became impossible to conceive of it outside of a punishing rubric, that now I'm trying to think about discipline as a practice of love, a practice of care, a practice of dedication, which doesn't necessarily require <laughs> the more like masochistic elements that are, you know, frankly built in by an awful, awful system that demands productivity on this level. And it's not simply a personal failing that I have this kind of relationship to work. It's based on a wage labor form. And I think finding joy in work outside the rubric of a self-help language, right? Where it's not about like, do what you love. That's not what I'm talking about. But finding joy in work and also finding joy in collective work, I think is where my hopes are. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, I just wanted to ask you, cause you, you talk so much about plants in the book and even your dedication to your partner references him watering your plants. <laughs> what kind of plants are you into? In our home, we have this incredible plant called a maidenhair fern which grows in damp and partially shaded environments, which we have found a perfect place for. She is gendered she, probably because the name is Maiden, and she's enormous, and she likes to drink water in great quantities every day, and I really relate to this intense thirst and dependence that she has. She's extremely dependent. All of our other plants are pretty autonomous, but we have this one really needy plant. I think because of this dedication that she requires, we've personified her and also become quite attached to this, a symbol, I think, of mutual care. And I think also a symbol of, you know, life in the domestic sphere, <laughs> like <laughs> freelancers watering our plants. It's, it's definitely an image you've seen on Instagram. <laughs> But there's a reason, you know, people need plants. Yeah, they sure do. Well, Elvia, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was great to talk to you. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Elvia Wilk, her new book of essays. It's called Death by Landscape. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.